everybody, and welcome to Mom Cooks Fast and Slow. I'm Alex Sullivan, and I'm delighted to have you at my kitchen table. Ahead of today's episode, I want to mention there are a few PG-13 topics, so now would be a good time to throw on your headphones if you have any little ones around. Today, I have Connecticut State Senator Ryan Fazio here to discuss the most recent legislative session in Connecticut, which has just ended. We discuss how the legislative session works, a few controversial bills, such as the Fair Housing Bill, and, most important to me, the mental health crisis affecting our society today. I am so grateful to Senator Fazio for spending the time with me today and hope this podcast will be able to reach people who aren't able to attend any of the in-person town halls he is doing in our area. If you would like to reach out to him, I've included his email in the episode notes. I hope you enjoy. Senator Ryan Fazio, thank you so much for joining me on Mom Cooks Fast and Slow. Thanks for having me, Alex. Excited to be here. Um, I am thrilled to have you on. I think it's going to be a great conversation. Um, The 2023 Connecticut legislature session has just ended and I thought it would be a great way to update people on a few controversial bills and just in general how um, these legislature sessions go um, because I think more and more people are becoming interested in them as they become more uh, necessary to pay attention to. So I'd love to just start with you giving a background about who you are, how you represent Connecticut, um, and then dig into a little bit about the legislative session. Yeah, and thanks for having me. I think the topics we're going to talk about today are all very important, um, especially towards uh, kids and for families. Um, I am from the area. I grew up in Greenwich. I went to the public schools here. I spent most of my career working in the uh, renewable energy space in Stanford. Uh, now I work for a financial firm. Uh, and a few years ago, um, I, I just became very frustrated with the direction of the state government and decided to run for the state Senate. Uh, the first time I lost a close race and uh, the second two times I won close races. And um, uh, I, I ultimately ran because I think that our state government could be doing a better job leading our state. Um, I think our state has so many great attributes and, and characteristics that make it very easy for it to succeed fantastically, except uh, state policy and public policy that um, make it easier to raise a family here, make it easier to work here and succeed here economically and in every other way in life. So I thought if I wanted a job done right, I should try doing it myself. And so I'm in my second term currently. Uh, I love what I do. I feel honored to serve and represent Greenwich and Stanford and New Canaan and help the rest of the state as well. And um, have actually found the last two years, uh, last two uh, sessions in the legislature more productive than I had uh, expected or feared going into it. So um, maybe that's a product of the fact that the, this last year has been a little bit more bipartisan and a little bit less partisan than in the past, which is positive. Um, but there's good and there's bad that come out of the legislature. Um, and there's a lot that comes out of the legislature, as we'll talk about. It's difficult to keep track of all the bills um, for me as a legislator to say nothing of the public. So I think that's why this uh, episode will hopefully be helpful to your listeners. Yeah, that's. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because in prepping for this interview, I mean, I did 12 hours of research. I went through every single bill that um, was 
possibly put up for a vote. And then I was using Bard, the uh, AI function on Google to kind of outline all the bills for me so I could understand exactly what I was reading, make sure I understood it. And even Bard was getting confused about what actually (laughs) passed, what got vetoed by Lamont. I was cross-checking with the CT mirror. So um, to say the least, it is very difficult to keep track of all of these bills. So as we go through some of them, you know, I'd love to kind of get your insights about how the legislature adds amendments, um, votes on these issues, how Ned Lamont is able to veto uh, some of these things, even if they pass both the House and the Senate. Um, so, if, and also, it's great to hear that um, it's a more bipartisan workshop um, this year than maybe in previous years. So I love, I love to hear that um, even the minority voices are being heard in the state um, and that people are willing to work together. So that's great news as someone sitting here in the state of Connecticut. Um, but if you could talk a little bit to how the legislative session worked this year um, and, and how you guys were able to work together and, and you know just kind of the details around that. Yeah, well, first of all, if you spent 12 hours researching bills, you uh, spent more time on it than some legislators do in an entire <laughs> legislative session. Um, so that's 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 positive. Um, so I, I think there's a couple of reasons why this was a more balanced, more reasonable, and more bipartisan legislative session, in spite of the numbers having a clear majority on, on one side of the aisle. And I think first is that the governor was pretty reasonable on a lot of different issues. And um, I think used his political capital to um, bring more moderation to the state policy after his reelection by a large margin, especially on economic policy, where, uh, again, I think he spent his political capital ensuring that we abided by the fiscal restraints to keep spending in check and keep the size of government in check, and also bring a reduction to the uh, to middle-class income taxes. So I think he was a good actor in all this. But also I think, listen, one party's had um, control of the uh, of the state government for uh, 12 years, um, in almost entirely. And in that time, they've had the opportunity to pass a lot of the things they've, they've wanted uh, above the objections of the minority party. So it's possible they were actually running out of uh, uh, priorities in that time that were more one-sided. Uh, and, um, and, and so this term was a little bit less fraught because of that, but, you know, so many people up there are, they're really up there for the right reasons. They're good people, irrespective of their point of view on policy. Uh, there's others who are naturally not always easy to work with, but the majority of people are really up there for the right reasons. And whether you agree with them or not, um, they, they try to work in a collaborative manner. And I often found that on energy policy, on healthcare policy, um, on policy towards charities and kids' mental health, uh, that I worked uh, bills that I worked on and helped pass uh, in those categories. That people were collaborative, and, and the relationships I built were positive. Um, I'm sure we'll also talk about issues where um, I think it was partisan. I think it was ideological the initiatives, and uh, I think it was unfortunate that things went in the direction they did. So uh, there's good and there's bad, um, and uh, you know, and we're just trying our best. Uh, to to make things better and stop the bad. Great. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the way the session works is there are committees. You're you're on a few of them yourself. Um, each committee comes up with bills that they want to present to either the Senate or the House, depending on if you're in the House or the Senate. 
those bills then get brought to the floor and are voted on. And if they fail, they can go back and amendments are made and then they come and get voted on again. And then if they get passed, they go to the House or vice versa to get passed. And then they go to Governor Ned Lamont's desk to either be signed or vetoed by him. Is that correct? So the legislative session lasts almost the entirety of the first half of each year. And it starts with legislators, individual legislators, uh, proposing bills, proposing legislation on any number of topics. Those bills get referred to different committees that are the whose whose subject matter uh, is relevant to the proposed bill. Um, Those committees, um, which have a chairman from the majority party, a ranking member for the minority party, and, you know, and more members of the majority party than the minority party, decide whether or not to do a public hearing on the bill or not to, um, to draft the bill in its, um, in its bare bones structure into a fully fledged bill um, and write it that way and ultimately decide whether to vote it out of committee um, or not. And um, there's negotiations in that process between the chairman who would be a Democrat in Connecticut and the ranking member who would be a Republican um, on all those bills. And, and so we have those, you know, it, I'm on, I'm on two committees where I'm the ranking member. So we constantly have negotiations and discussions over the first few months of the year, January, February, March, about these bills and whether they should get out of committee or not, and how we can make them agreeable to, um, to, to all sides in order to get them out with the least friction possible. And so once they're out of committee, if they're voted out of committee, once they're voted out of committee, they would theoretically, if they don't have to go to another committee, for instance, if they cause a revenue loss or a, um, uh, or a spending increase, they would have to go to the appropriations or the finance committee. Um, but uh, say they're past the committee process, they would go to the full House or Senate floor for a vote. And then the negotiation is between the leadership of the caucuses, um, whether or not uh, ultimately, the majority is going to decide if something's brought forward, but um, whether or not those bills should go to a full vote of the House or Senate. And then once it's passed the House or Senate, it would go to the other chamber. Uh, and then once it would go through the other chamber, it would um, it would obviously go to the governor to sign. But, you know, what you see necessarily on TV in the floor debate, in the committee debate, isn't the full story totally. Um, I do think that the public hearing process, kind of what you see on TV is a little bit more organic and actually does, um, is, is less scripted and it, and it actually um, influences where things go um, because it's the public speaking out because it's the first time people are really thinking through um, legislation. But um, most of the work, a large portion of the work does happen um, among leading legislators um, in private. And that's because that's where frank discussions happen. That's where you actually count votes on you know, how much people on both sides would be in favor or opposed to something. Um, and it's also where relationships are built. And, and I think the relationships, um, if, if, if the legislators, the leaders are acting in good faith, are very valuable to, to making good legislation pass and making bad legislation better uh, or preventing it from passing. Okay, great. So now that we've kind of laid out how it all works, um, I did want to dive into some bills that I know are of interest to a lot of people in our town of New Canaan, um, but also some of uh, these bills are the ones that were discussed much more than others. There was some, you know, 
very easy legislation passed through that supported veterans, that supported, you know, making sure that kids were getting the services they need, making sure that, you know, foster homes were getting additional services and all of those were great and everything went through smoothly and, you know, not much debate there. Then there were bills like Senate Bill 998, which is the Housing Opportunity and Affordability Act. And I know this has been a point of contention for the town of New Canaan um, with one of the builders, CARP, that um, has been trying to put up multi-family homes um, and buildings in our town. Um, To kind of set the stage for how I approach this, I don't, I'm of two minds about it. Part of me is I moved from New York City to New Canaan to live in a town that had a small town feel, that I could let my kids go run in the backyard and say, come back for dinner, that um, I had to drive everywhere because I didn't want to live a city life. And I liked the community feel of a town like New Canaan. And part of that is zoning. Part part of that feel is, is made by zoning. None, another part of me thinks that I moved to like you said, a a very blue state with um, a lot of people that we elect that wants to kind of change the way small towns operate. Um, And Connecticut continues to vote to put these people in office. And so that's a message in itself, I think, that, you know, if that's what you're going to vote for, then kind of like made your bed, you have to lie in it. So I don't know why we're, you know, throwing a hissy fit now about things that we continue to vote for. Um, so I'm kind of neutral on this myself, but I know people in New Canaan have very heated feelings about it. Um, so I wanted to go through this bill specifically, what actually has been approved and and voted on, um, and what that means for New Canaan and projects such as the CARP project. So I think you painted the right picture that there's a balance of different considerations. The two I consider as a policymaker with regard to housing are first that we do want to increase the housing stock in the state and in the region um, and improve affordability. On the other hand, we also want local communities to be making decisions that their residents are actually affected by so that there's buy-in and that there's community input on the development that does occur. Um, So 30 years ago, there was a housing law passed in the state, very consequential, called 830G. And basically what it said is that if you create development that has at least 30% deed restricted housing, a a quote unquote affordable housing, that you can go around almost all the local planning and zoning rules. So in a place like New Canaan, you have a single family zone neighborhood on Weed Street where where, again, everyone bought into that neighborhood expecting the single family homes and, um, and, and you have a developer who's come in and bought a single lot and is proposed to put up over a hundred units a large and dense apartment building right in the middle of that neighborhood. I don't think that's fair, and I don't think that's a balance of those considerations. So I think we could do this in a better way. The problem is that you have many of the members of leadership in the state legislature wanting to double down on those types of policies. So currently, the mandate for 830G basically says if you have 10% of this housing in your housing stock, uh, then you're not you're exempted from the from the um, workaround rules. Um, this new proposal, Fair Share, which was originally House Bill 6633, says that that mandate can now be up to 20%. So it'll mean that you either have all your uh, zoning basically eliminated up until you reach that really high threshold of 
deed restricted housing, a very specific type of affordable housing. This is not all affordable housing. This is a very specific type. Um, you'll either have basically all your zoning nullified um, or most of your zoning nullified, or you as a municipality will actually be financially liable for constructing the housing yourself. And that's how it's kind of worked out in the only other state um, that this policy has been employed, which is New Jersey. And as, as many people will say, why would you ever follow New Jersey on anything? <laughs> um, uh, and, and so that bill in its fully fledged form as a mandate, either going around the zoning or making uh, towns financially liable, which would, I think on the average taxpayer in the state result in their property taxes going up thousands of dollars per year. I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars in costs, potentially, if the full House Bill 6633 was passed. So what they did, the leadership was working very hard to pass this proposal. They eventually folded in a early stage, basically I would call a fair share phase one into Senate Bill 998 at the 11th hour, literally the, the 11th hour of the last Friday night of session um, in the House, which is, you know, we talk about legislative procedure. This was probably one of the ugliest um, examples of it in the, in the session that we just had. And basically what it does, it'll set up the calculations now that each town or city would eventually be subjected to. And it'll also set up the bureaucracy at the state level in the state government uh, that will operate this type of mandate, but it doesn't include the full mandate yet. So it set up, it creates the setup, it creates the bureaucracy so that they'll have a turnkey operation where they can come back next year or the year after and just implement the mandate that would potentially end the zoning uh, that towns and cities have set up for themselves or potentially make towns and cities liable for cumulative billions of dollars of financial liability to construct um, the housing, the new housing themselves. So I think this is just one of the most unworkable and unreasonable proposals I've seen come across our desks. This, what ultimately passed again at the 11th hour um, with a very slim majority was just the phase one of this proposal. So next year, we're going to have to come back and fight that again, and it'll be one of the biggest headline fights that we have in the legislature. So if we don't want to turn into Houston, maybe we start writing legislators about it, I guess, is the... Yes. And I've this is the issue where I've seen the biggest outcry from the public. So the public has done a great job in fighting it. And that's probably part of the reason that we didn't get the full kit and caboodle this term. Um, so we're going to have to keep doing that. Okay. So it seems like there's pushback on local control in terms of housing, um, which brings me to Senate Bill 1, which is an act concerning transparency and education. And I'd like you to kind of explain to us how that changed um, through the process, because, you know, there were a lot of things in that bill that I really liked as a parent, um, but ultimately it did not go through. Um, and it seems that Governor, Governor Lamont's reason for it not going through was that he believed in local control. So it's like, oh, local control is not okay when it comes to housing, but local control is something I can use to veto a bill about education. So I'd like to dig in a little bit into what the Senate bill ultimately was voted on or 
you know, passed through and how it changed. Um, you know, in the research I did, there was supposed to be parental access to curriculum um, mandated for the Board of Education um, to post on their website, parental access to teacher qualifications who would be teaching their kids, um, and then a process for parental appeals in decisions about certain aspects of children's education, all of which I am certainly a proponent of. Um, so I, I, if you could talk a bit about that bill and why it failed. Um, so Senate Bill 1 um, and, and just making sure I could be wrong, but it, it passed. So it passed the House and the Senate. Um, has it been vetoed or? Uh... So this is, I think <laughs> it's, it said it had been vetoed, but also there was like maybe an iteration early May that, I, I you know, when it maybe it went back to then get through through to June. So this is where I get confused about what actually was officially vetoed versus what actually was officially not passed by both houses and, and when that was. Yeah. So, so I would say this is my understanding of what Senate bill one was and, and maybe why um, we could be um, uh, crossing some wires on it. So Senate bill one was an education bill that came through the Senate originally, and it would impose, I think a lot of new mandates on local school districts that, they kind of roll out rules for school climate. And, and by school climate, you mean kind of the attitudes towards and the policies towards student behavior and consequences for student behavior in schools, um, a, a valid concept. Uh, ultimately, I thought the mandates were way too heavy um, and they distract from what the, the, the main goal of schools needs to be, which is, which is teaching core curriculum uh, very well. Um, and I also worried it actually makes school climate worse because um, the type of school climate changes that it would be mandating were called, um, are, are kind of in, in the academic sphere called restorative justice. And basically it means that it's making it more difficult for schools, um, local administrators in the schools to be rendering consequences on student misbehavior and the premises that for, for those advocates, and this is a premise that's been around for at least a decade, um, is that if you are too punitive towards kids who are misbehaving, uh, that you will actually uh, cause even more misbehavior on their part and, and might lead them towards the criminal justice system and a, a life of um, uh, law breaking and, and um, interaction with the criminal justice system. So the premise is that if you if you reduce consequences, if you reduce um, punishment for misbehaving students, that you'll actually um, it, you'll actually ensure that they behave better in the end, which I think is um, yeah. And as a as an Italian I'm mom, a, I, I disagree. I'm not with. a parent, but you can. Uh, I, I I'd be willing to s submit to your your interpretation of that um, <laughs> that idea. Um, you know, there's certain things that are so unbelievable that they don't, can only come from academics and <laughs> intellectuals. And this is a good example of where um, where the pointy headed people um, are, are, are totally against common sense. So that was what I read the big premise of the bill. It did pass the legislature and I do assume it'll be signed into law. And, uh, you know, this would be good for, you know, for us maybe after this interview to go back and check. I don't think it has been signed into law, but I think it will be. I think the good parts 
that you might be referring to on Senate Bill 1 or some of the amendments that we called as Senate Republicans, which included uh, an amendment to require, and I was one of the co-introducers of this one, to require that curriculum be posted online so parents could have easy access to it and understand what their kids are being taught in school, which I think is extraordinarily common sense. It actually disarms some of these more cultural war issues that we're, um, we're experiencing because there's transparency and transparency encourages good behavior. And it also disarms, dis, uh, it reduces distrust because now everyone knows what's actually happening. And so we actually in earnest tried to um, make amendments on the Senate floor to make the bill better. And, you know, going back to kind of the, the schoolhouse rock um, uh, uh, that we had at the beginning is that uh, you on the floor as a legislator, as an individual legislator can submit an amendment to change a bill and it would be voted on on the floor um, to see whether that bill changes in that way or not. <clears throat> Most amendments fail, but um, and that one unfortunately failed, even though I think it was common sense. Um, but ultimately, the Senate, mostly on party lines, not entirely on party lines, ended up passing this bill. And um, if you go to the Connecticut Senate Republicans YouTube page and, and search uh, Senate SB1, uh, I gave a 40 minute or 45 minute floor speech explaining why I was opposed to the bill ultimately and why I thought it was um, counterproductive that we were spending our time imposing new mandates on school districts to uh, to um, to I think potentially harm school climate instead of focusing on learning loss that we've seen over the last three years or four years in school since the pandemic and ensuring that we have high standards for all kids that kids are um, achieving at a high academic level, regardless of their background. And so I thought it was an enormous missed opportunity um, and that um, we should be looking to high achieving uh, examples of educators, including in New Canaan, including in the Stanford Charter School for Excellence, including in Western Middle School and other great schools um, in, in, in different parts of the country uh, to be a serve as a blueprint for making the education system across Connecticut the best it can be. So I thought it was a missed opportunity, and I thought it could be very counterproductive to school climate, and that's why I voted against it. Got it. So the things I liked about the amendments you guys made are not included. The things that I don't agree with are included and likely to be passed is basically what you're telling me. That, that's probably correct, but we could, we could double check that. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Well, so, so this is how I'm now going to wade into trickier waters here. Um, and I want to kind of set this up as I did not have any interest in politics pre-2020. Like I was so out to lunch. I was like, uh, America is a great place. Good people are working in office. Like I have my views, but like at the end of the day, the difference in views is like not that big of a difference. Doesn't make that big of a difference on my life. Um, and that changed aggressively in 2020 when um, policies were being made that hurt my kids and hurt a lot of kids uh, in the state um, and country, to, to be honest. So then I started going back and thinking about, okay, um, you know, I wasn't paying attention to the medical, um, excuse me, the religious exemption for vaccines when that was all going down. Um, I thought, you know, 
Connecticut wouldn't actually take away someone's religious right to have a view on something that seems ridiculous. Um, and then they did. They took away the religious exemption for um, kids that have uh, religious views about getting vaccines. And now um, people have had to move out of the state. Um, parents have had to homeschool as a result. Um, and I know that's being kind of uh, battled in court right now, um, but it happened. And then in 2022, you know, there was this talk about bathrooms and locker rooms and and sports and and how kind of transgender um, issues needed to be addressed with regards to those things. And I thought, well, surely, you know, women's views will be equally um, taken into concern as other people's, right? We want everyone to feel comfortable. We want to hear everyone's voice about certain topics. And so surely we'll we'll pay attention to, you know, objections and, um, and think about things in a smart way. Um, and in 2022, there was something that was going to kind of look into what the negative repercussions would be for women's sports or women's spaces um, by passing certain policies throughout past. And um, it wasn't, it, you know, no one paid attention to it. It, you know, was denied. Um, and so now <laughs> there's another bill and my mom spidey senses are going up and saying, okay, there's a couple of things that have been happening over COVID, but then, you know, uh, other stuff that I'm bringing up um, like now. And I am wondering this Senate Bill 0321. Now, I'm a very accepting person. I don't think there should be discrimination against anyone for anything they can or cannot control their skin color, their sexual orientation, their, you know, whatever. Like you treat people as an individual and that's it. Um, and this bill has has raised some questions for me, and um, I'm hoping that I'm wrong on it um, and that I'm not understanding it correctly. So I'd like you to kind of paint me a picture of it. But the Sexual Orientation Discrimination Prohibi Prohibition Amendment Act changed the definition to you can't discriminate based on someone's sexual um, orientation to you can't discriminate based on a person's sexual attraction. And so now you know, my like tinfoil hat goes on and I say, does this mean that if a pedophile applies for a high school job that they can't be discriminated against? Does it mean that the guy at Penn State that was just caught having sex with his dog could be my next elementary school teacher? Um, and and so I'm I'm worried about it just because it feels like the lines keep getting pushed on me and... I, you know, I see this and I get a little bit like mommy about it. So could you just address address this bill and how, you know, maybe I'm overreacting and great. I hope I am overreacting and, you know, what what the slippery slopes are around this. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it is an issue where we heard some concern from the public um, and uh, specifically from uh, uh, one advocacy group. And um because of that, we actually tried to um, amend this and we were successful in amending it in order to place stronger guardrails um, with regard to the concerns people have. But um, so just to be clear, the original state statute said, among other things, there's a lot of ways that in a private economic relationship, you cannot discriminate. So things like race, things like gender. But it included. Uh, it also includes sexual orientation, and its definition of sexual orientation 
uh, on which you cannot discriminate in, in, in an economic uh, or a civil encounter would be, um, it, it defined it as whether you're homosexual or um, bisexual or heterosexual. Um, and so what this bill did is it changed that definition to attraction to any gender, um, which I thought in the plain letter reading, I, and, and it's about, it's a longer sentence than that. So people can go to cga.ct.gov and search um, uh, Senate Bill 321 on the, on the, bot, on the drop down at the bottom uh, and look at the, the, the full language themselves. But basically it went from saying um, that sexual orientation was, uh, was whether you had a homosexual, heterosexual or bisexual uh, attraction to, um, regard, uh, to uh, attraction to any gender. Um, and I thought, again, in the plain letter reading, and we made sure we worked with our attorneys, our Senate Republican attorneys in trying to interpret this, our interpretation is that that would really just include sexual attraction to, uh, to, any, uh, um, to any different gender uh, of adults. And it wouldn't, um, it wouldn't include so someone who had an attraction to people who are underage or, or attraction to non-humans or whatever you want to say. Um, but we also wanted to make sure that people had as much confidence in the public as possible. And so in a different bill, we put in an amendment to this bill, um, which says that um, there's no protections for sexual attraction that are based on something that would be illegal under the, the part of the statute that would constitute sex crimes. And so that's in the school, it's in the, in the bonding and school construction bill, which is a large bill that was passed on the last day of session in order to amend this bill, Senate Bill 321. And so that's why, even though I didn't think that my plain reading of that original piece of legislation would raise the problems that some had the concerns about, we still amended it in a way that strengthened the guardrails to make it less likely. Now, as you point out, there's a lot of cultural change these days and you know call me a conservative but i think when you have enormous amounts of social change that inevitably some's going to be good and some's going to go um, over the skis and it's going to be counterproductive and so ensuring that we have the right balance uh, that we're accepting in our society but we also protect um, cultural values and cultural virtues uh, i think is important and that's what i think being a good statesman and being a good leader is all about it balancing different important and valuable considerations and so um i understand why people would be concerned because um we have thing, seen uh cultural movements radicalize in unreasonable ways and and you described some of them so this is one i think we're going to be okay on and and we have people in the legislature who do pay attention to them uh and and so i think this one will be okay uh for the reasons i described Great. That is great news, Ryan. Okay. Well, thank you for kind of diving into that. I appreciate that. Um, okay. So now kind of um, the last bill I want to talk about is Senate Bill 2, which, you know, for me was a great bill. It improves access to mental, physical, and emotional health for children. Um, it provides funding for mental health services. Um, it creates mental child mental health advocates. Um, it requires school to provide mental health. I mean, these are all things that, quite frankly, we really need. Um, and we need it because there is 
a very aggressive mental health crisis going on in Connecticut and nationally, um, especially in children under 18. Um, you know, if you look at the statistics for suicide, they have increased, I think, uh, for girls, it's like 75%. Um, uh, it's for boys, I think it's actually even more than that. So it's a really scary time to be a parent, certainly, um, for kids with bad mental health. Um, and I'm glad it's becoming a national conversation. I'm glad it's becoming a conversation in Connecticut. Um, I saw Senator Murphy put out an essay about the state of loneliness of children. Um, and I guess my the reason I want to talk about this bill is not necessarily what's in the bill. I think what's in the bill is great. But is there an awareness from Connecticut legislators that what they did to our children during COVID with lockdowns, with masks, with um, making children fear even touching their friends or uh, trusted adults, do they realize that they were part of the problem? Is there any um, apologies, any self-awareness? Because I have to be honest, I am a person that believes in forgiveness, and I am a person that thinks that the only way our society gets better is if we all forgive each other um, for maybe discriminating against people that didn't want to get, um, you know, the the V from um, that actually doesn't stop the spread. The spread. Um, you know, but I want an apology first. I want someone to say, I'm sorry that I vilified you when you are speaking at board of ed meetings that your son was suffering behind a mask. I'm sorry that when you told me that autistic children were set back six years because of teachers wearing masks. Um, and I'm sorry that when you said that masks don't work at a population level and then Dr. Fauci just came out, you know, a month ago agreeing with that and saying on national news, masks do not stop the spread of COVID, maybe 10% on the margins. And we hurt our kids, you know, and, and now you're trying to pass mental health bills and you're writing essays about loneliness. Like, where is my apology and where is the acknowledgement that part of what they did added to this crisis? I don't think you've gotten it and I don't think you're going to get it. And and I think the contradiction that you've described is is a very important one to point out because the people who were in power nationwide in the media establishment and the scientific establishment and in the highest levels of government, not just state government, but federal government who are responsible for these um, usurpations of people's freedom uh, at an extreme margin um, for over two years, um, without accounting for the suffering that would be incurred by our most vulnerable in our population, especially kids, um, and many workers and small businesses who lost their livelihoods for an extended period of time, the people who are responsible for those decisions have not taken responsibility for the mistakes they made. Um, there is never an apology. And as you say, you know, maybe it's the Catholic in me. I believe in forgiveness. I believe in grace. But you also do need to take responsibility for your actions and show that you're sorry in order to move forward. We all make mistakes. God knows I make more than my fair share of them. But this was a mistake for which there was a lot of victims. And just yesterday, we saw the nation's report card come out, um, the, the most uh, thorough assessment of student achievement around the country. And the 
drops in student achievement for a two-year period or a three-year period were the greatest ever recorded in this country. And it's largely because of the restrictions that were imposed on kids, even though we knew from a ver very early stage that kids were not subject to the same um, level of risks for COVID that adults were. And that um, the restrictions on uh, students and the restrictions on schools and um, the ability of kids to interact and learn uh, were, did clearly not have the benefits compared to the costs that would um, that would that would render such a policy um, worthwhile, uh, especially um, worth enforcing for over two years. And at the same time, you saw that states that did not impose these draconian policies on students and schools and these public health restrictions, um, even though their death rates adjusted for population and demographics ended up being the same as the rest of the country, that their student achievement actually did not fall off. And in Florida, there was no decrease in student achievement in reading from 2019 to 2022 or 2023. Whereas across the country, including in Connecticut, there was the largest fall off in student achievement in a two or three year period in recorded history. And that is a scandal of epic proportions. It's one of the great policy mistakes in our nation's history, and we have moved on for it. But the fact is, when you give people responsibility, you should assess their track record and what they did with the responsibility they had in the past. And so in the future, <clears throat> voters and people who are in a position to hire and fire people in administrations should take that into account, that people who made decisions um, at the time uh, where there were detractors who criticized them for those decisions, including both you and me, um, that those people should be given less grace and less credit in, in their decision making and uh, until they have a full accounting of the mistakes they made. There are plenty of people out there who do actually take responsibility for the mistakes they made. Um, you know, every, every year I could probably tell you three or five votes that I think are in, I shouldn't have, I, I, should, I made incorrectly. But this was a mistake of epic and historic proportions, and the next generation is going to feel it for a very long time, and, um, and there needs to be an accounting, and there needs to be accountability for it. So, um, which leads me to our last bill that I want to talk about, which is a bill that you, um, I think, co-authored, um, which is addressing another prong of the mental health crisis with our kids. And that is um, social media. I mean, I think social media is the m most evil thing that our kids have access to probably today. Um, so with that being said, I also think that, you know, I don't want legislators to have to decide to take away or, you know, um, have a say in how I'm raising my kids. I want adults to take away their kids' social media by themselves. But I do think that because we live in such a dynamic and changing tech environment that it seems that, you know, legislatures do need to get involved. So could you speak a little bit about Senate Bill 3 and, and what you accomplished there? Yeah, so Se Senate Bill 3 included um, things that I had advocated for and proposed. Um, I co-sponsored it. I did not co-author it. And I think enormous credit does deserve to go to the, um, the chairman of the committee, the general law committee, uh, Senator James Maroney, for uh, being the, the, the most responsible party in, in passing this legislation. And among other things, it 
it, it tightens rules around social media for adolescents. And it does two things in particular. Uh, first, it requires that social media companies take down the account of an adolescent if they, um, their demonstrated parent requests that it be taken down um, and, and do so within a certain period of time. And second, that it reduces the ability of social media companies to collect and utilize the data of adolescents uh, on social media platforms. So the idea with that is that they would reduce, obviously there's privacy concerns, but more importantly, they'd reduce the ability of the platform to be viral and addictive for, um, for adolescents. So you think, you know, if you like cat videos, um, the, the, the TikTok collects the fact that you're watching cat videos for longer and it's feeding you more cat videos and you're on the platform until two or three in the morning. And a lot of, a lot of the problem with social media, for instance, is that it's so addictive and, and viral that, um, that, that adolescents are losing sleep. They, they get much less sleep. I mean, you know, I, I'm on my phone all the time and I don't have TikTok because, because <laughs> I'm worried about it. But, um, but, you know, I, I find myself watching these, you know, whatever on, on Instagram till way too late and kids need sleep. Um, but m most importantly, kids need human connection and they need to yes. form the social skills that are necessary to succeed in life, but also to be fulfilled in life. And we know that people are having fewer friendships. They're spending less time with other with other people that kids through COVID and through this new uh, addiction to social media are forming less real human connection than um, generations past. And it's so it's no surprise that when all the social science says that human connection is probably the most important factor or one of the two or three most important factors in um, having a fulfilled life and avoiding the type of pathologies, the mental health problems that we see increasing in our society, it should be no surprise that this addictive quality of social media today is having enormous negative consequences on the mental health of children. Um, the, a, a bill that I did write and passed last year was to implement programming with regard to smartphones in schools and specifically in middle schools and to test what the effects of those interventions, whether it would be a ban on, um, on smartphones in the classroom for middle school students or whether it would be educational programming uh, in their health class to tell, warn them about the negative health effects and mental health effects in particular of social media and smartphones. Um, we passed that bill last year that'll do these interventions in a handful of schools across the state and study what their effects on, on mental health, but also on academic achievement. Um, and, and the person I got this um, idea from was Jonathan Haidt, who's a famous social psychologist, um, H-A-I-D-T, um, and is a really great guy uh, out of NYU um, and has become pretty famous. But just last week, he had a, um, a long essay in The Atlantic, um, I think entitled Get Phones Out of Schools. And, and basically, there's no justification for having smartphones in schools. There, he, he cited a study that even a student taking a test, having the phone in their backpack versus locked in another room, the student who had the phone locked in their backpack performed worse on the test just because of the anxiety it created that their phone was right there. But think about it. As you said, we shouldn't be making decisions for parents as, as the government, but schools are an area of cognizance, an area for which uh, governments do have responsibility to, to create certain rules and operate them. But it's also 20 to 25% of the waking hours of a kid's life. So if you can 
reduce the influence of smartphones and social media for that 20 to 25 percent of a kid's waking hours especially when he's or she is around friends and has the potential to make friends and build stronger connections in addition to learn more in school then that would probably be enormous progress so reducing the influence of, of smartphones in schools is also important you know just when i walk through my alma mater if I, i'm visiting at greenwich high school we have this very large student center where kids hang out during free periods and they eat lunch and you know that that's where we made friends and you know some of us who are nerdier kids you know it might have been a little bit more difficult uh you know making those friends but it was still important nonetheless to go through that kind of um that that, that process uh, on a, a day daily basis but when i walk through the student center these days uh if i'm ever visiting the school to give a speech um i see kids on their phones i hate that at, at the tables and so um this is something that there are, I think, quality solutions, proposals to address. They're just starting to be rolled out in states like now Connecticut, California, and Utah have also implemented, I think, positive reforms along these lines. And we see some of the most, the, you know, the fanciest, most elite boarding schools in the Northeast too ban smartphones in schools and, um, and give kids kind of um, analog, old-fashioned cell phones instead so they can still connect with their parents or anyone in authority. So uh, I think we we have Connecticut, we want to be a leader on this, I think because of Maroney's leadership and, and some of the other proposals that me and my colleagues have have, um, have, uh, have introduced that we are going in the right direction, but we have a lot of work to do because this is a very major crisis in American society. Well, I love that we're being a leader in it. That's great. Um, and I agree. I mean, <laughs> I, I hope, I, I mean, I say it now, but I only have my oldest is seven. So, you know, I know it gets more and more difficult as they get older, but I am a big believer in that flip phone uh, vibe. That's, that's the vibe I'm going to go for for my kids is you can have the the razor that I had, but, um, you well, know. Well, the teenagers went back from AirPods to, to the wired so, headphones. So, <laughs> so maybe, maybe old fashioned technology can still be. Cool. Yeah. We'll be, we'll be like ironically cool, my kids. <laughs> Um, okay. Well, Ryan, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much. Um, before I ask my last question that I ask everyone that comes on this podcast, um, is there anything, any other bill that you think parents should have on their radar when, um, we're either in school or, um, socially or whatever, you know, is there anything that you would like to flag? Um, no, I, I would just say this. Um, reach out to your state legislators. Reach out to your local officials. They actually are accessible and they will answer you oftentimes and you actually can make a difference. Um, you know, I, I think, Alex, we met uh, originally during the debate over um, over masks in schools two years after the beginning of COVID when all the evidence pointed to the fact that it was hurting uh, the well-being of students. And the very fact that so many parents, especially in New Canaan, New Canaan, I really think was the genesis of this, stood up and spoke out that this was hurting their kids uh, and that the kids needed uh, to be the priority and that this policy needed to change in the state. They made a difference and they, they it's because of them, it's because of parents like you that the state removed the statewide masking mandate in schools earlier than it would have otherwise. And so on the state and local level, parents, individual citizens can make a difference. And so my my recommendation is be engaged, reach out to your local um, and state uh, 
uh, elected officials um, because they are accessible and they do oftentimes listen. And sometimes it's for bad reasons and sometimes it's for good reasons, but they often do. Great. Well, thank you, Ryan. And I'm glad that you represent me at um, the Senate. So thank you very much for your service. Um, all right. So the last question I ask everyone in every interview is, what is your favorite family tradition and why? I think my fam- favorite family tradition was always uh, Thanksgiving growing up. Um, my, you know, my grandmother and grandfather would always host it. Um, it. It's it's a great kind of Christian holiday. It's a great American holiday. It's a uniquely American holiday. And, and it always is the one that felt most like family to me. Um, my, both of my grandparents died in just the last couple of years, but they were very special to me and, and that tradition carries on. So, um, passing it from generation to generation is a very important thing to do in our family. Um, but Thanksgiving always felt like family. It felt, um, it felt like America to me. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the most special tradition that we have. Well, I love that. And I'm so sorry for your loss, but I'm sure you have lots of great memories that you'll hold forever. So that's right. And thank you. Yeah. Um, all right, Ryan. Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate you taking the time out today and, um, hopefully I will see you soon. Thanks for having me, Alex. It was a great time.